Hello and welcome back to Talk Evidence, your periodic look at the world of evidence. We've got a great episode for you today. We're going to be talking about uh, long-term health consequences, long-term effects after mild COVID infections, and also recovery after stroke, particularly returning to work as a marker of health. We're going to take a look at an interesting study designed to estimate vaccine effectiveness in children. And finally, we're going to discuss the healthcare crisis. How did we get there? We've got three factors that we're going to have a look at. One factor that perhaps we haven't been thinking about enough is the time that's allotted for doctors to do all of the things that we're meant to do according to guidelines and introduces the concept of the time needed to treat. We're going to discuss uh, tackling overdiagnosis and take a closer look and get a better understanding of the data everyone's been talking about in the UK, the ONS excess death data. I'm Helen McDonald, Publication, Ethics and Content Integrity Editor for the BMJ and BMJ Journals, and I'm joined by Juan Franco, Academic Clinician and Editor-in-Chief of EBM. Hi, Helen. Hi, Joe. And Joe Ross, Physician and US Editor for the BMJ. Hey, everybody. Nice to see you. Hi, everyone. First, we're going to get to COVID and long COVID. It's been quite a bad year for respiratory viruses and flu, and you may notice that I am sounding a little bit bunged up myself today, which I apologise for, and COVID is just one of the many nasty bugs floating around out there. Long COVID is quite an established principle now. Um, This group of people who, for no other particular reason, have symptoms that go on for longer than three weeks, like breathlessness, cough or tiredness and pains. Um, And we've got a group of authors who published a paper in the BMJ who've been asking how common long COVID is after mild infection compared to those who didn't have it and whether it varies by age or sex, vaccination status or different SARS-CoV-2 variants, including Omicron. Joe, this is a big data study and it's one that we're definitely going to come to you to to summarise for us. It's a pretty big paper. So you've got um, you've got big data and a big paper, lots of it, lots of it. Tell us about it. Yeah, this is, you know, this is, a, I thought, a very interesting paper that tries to get at this issue that we've all been experiencing, which is that people, particularly people who got uh, infected with COVID prior to their vaccines being available, just the large number of people who continued and persisted to have unusual symptoms that were burdensome, that affected their daily life, um, certainly out of the ordinary compared to, you know, what their lives were like beforehand. And so this is a paper that tries to, you know, put numbers to that. And you might ask why the BMJ would publish a study that was focused on people who got infected with COVID back, you know, in 2020 uh, up through 2021. But this is exactly why, because we're conti- these patients continue to need uh, care services, and we're still trying to figure out how best to treat these problems and symptoms that they continue to experience. So just briefly, this this is a a big study that uses electronic medical record data from one large uh, healthcare organization in Israel, the Maccabee Healthcare Services uh, System. And essentially what they did is they identified um, large numbers of of people who um, were infected with COVID and they were matched to people who had not been infected with COVID, adjusted for important variables like patient age and sex. And they looked at... um, over time, the persistence of symptoms based on what they came back to the healthcare system for. So this is one of those types of studies that, you know, they're not directly asking the patients, but they're looking at the electronic medical record to see, you know, did physicians who saw those patients say, you know, the patient you know, presented with a complaint of dyspnea or a weakness. Which is kind of important because it's not necessarily everything everyone experienced ever. Oh, yeah. It's just things that you experienced that were bothersome enough that you went to go and see someone about it and they wrote exactly exactly and there is a lot of information in this paper and it can be quite uh, overwhelming but i think among the sort of more interesting things to look at are the figures because i find that they actually simplified it in, in in many ways and if you look through visually you know figures two and three uh i think in particular show you um, the list of 70 different symptoms, acute diagnoses, infectious diseases, other chronic conditions that were charted by the physicians, you can see that there are only a handful for which the risk was higher in people who had been infected with COVID 
uh, versus not. And remember, this is mild COVID. This isn't people who are hospitalized for COVID. This is like people who you know tested positive. And those symptoms are the ones that we've been hearing about in the news, right? Uh, anosmia, respiratory disorders, concentration of memory problems, dyspnea, weakness, hair loss, palpitations, things like that. But the other th thing that this paper does quite valuably, of course, is it it shows that when you look at a whole bunch of other, you know, a lot of the other symptoms were no different. There was no difference in insomnia rates. There was no difference in cough, no difference in skin rashes or loss of appetite or other things like that. But then, uh, so that that's reassuring to see that there was no increased risk. But then what they do that I think is quite useful is they estimate the risk difference, which is to say, um, um, you know, in a how how much more likely is this, right? You know how you know what was the the great the 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 size difference, and what you see is like that there was major differences. For instance, um, uh, particularly long term uh, for like dyspnea and weakness, where the risk difference be between um, you know not having uh, had COVID and having had COVID was almost like fifty per ten thousand patients. So it, it it again it helps put numbers to this problem of how often uh, these issues were arising. But they do some other interesting things that I think our listeners might uh, find useful in their clinical practice uh, from you know like uh, looking over time. Uh, looking by age, you know, what was most common in kids was dyspnea and conjunctivitis, right? What was most common in older adults? Well, it was actually hair loss along with dyspnea. Uh, so you can kind of see that a little bit when you start to and think about, you know, the patients who are coming in to see you after COVID. Um, and they also look between men and women. And they do also show um, whether there were uh, differences uh in these types of symptoms for people who had been vaccinated versus not. Um, and most of these um, symptoms and conditions were simply less common. Uh, long COVID was almost, you could say, was less common in people who were who were vaccinated. But there were higher rates of dyspnea and hair loss there too. So it just, I th thought, provides a nice illustration of this unfortunate just impact, uh, you know, in scale that COVID has had on the broader population. It's not just all the people who've you know, had terrible hospitalizations, many people who lost their life, but even people who were infected, they never ended up in the hospital for this. They are still, there's, a, you know, a large population of patients who are still experiencing symptoms and problems from this virus. There was another condition in there linked to um, uh, long COVID, which was, which, which interested me, which was the um, streptococcal tonsillitis, which I thought was quite intriguing. Because over here in the UK, that, that has been um, very prevalent this season. Um and it, and it made me wonder about um, whether that was in some way linked to COVID. Um, but I know it can uh, go up and down anyway, but I, that, that one jumped out to me. Juan, what, else, what, what else jumped out for you? Well, I think that um, this paper is just great, the, the description it does. Um, it provides a lot. There, there are several papers that are doing the same, trying to get more data Um Specifically now, with that uh, that they're vaccinated people and see if the risk of post-COVID conditions is different. The data is going to be keep on going, and we're gonna be wanting more, especially with the new variants and in vaccinated people. But uh, perhaps I wanted to break down what the difference is between what we call post-COVID conditions and what is long COVID, because um, especially in the people in general refer to long COVID as a specific uh, syndrome in which the, their quality of life is quite impaired. There is usually a cluster of symptoms, fatigue, uh, dyspnea, and um, perhaps uh, brain fog, and, and so others. And this is quite different than isolated symptom count as that you get from databases and from codes so um or for example findings as you said streptococcal disease so uh i think that we in, in general these studies will have to make a point of trying to be very careful in how, what what they mention is long covid and what is post covid conditions which is this large example of, of of things because especially there's a community of patients that ident that identify with the, this syndrome of long covid and um and some of the of the findings might misrepresent what th that means for example uh, uh, the if you look at the data on the time to recovery um, is really reassuring because it tells you that most of these individual symptoms 
recover very uh, within a reasonable time frame, which might not be the same for those people with a cluster of symptoms and severe impairment of the quality of life. So the the the, the way we communicate these papers are, are is going to be. Um, we have we will have to rethink about that. Of course, mm. the paper uses standard that, definitions. Are you saying that Joe and I have done a bad job? Communicating this paper? No, no. <laughs> what I'm saying is, you didn't mention this in knew, the prep we, for the call. Why? You didn't. You didn't mention this when we when we spoke before, class. Well, what I'm saying is that the researchers need like a new framework. I know we hate, we don't like that word to use that much, but we need a new framework to categorize a little bit better. We are talking. And the researchers are talking with the the language everyone is using. I think but that's right. It, so you're saying maybe we shouldn't call this paper a being about long COVID as opposed to being the long term um, associations between COVID and some. Yeah, it's like the lo- the long term sequelae of COVID right now. But yes. I, I agree with you, Juan, and I, I do think that the science hopefully will catch up. I I know that I have heard of studies that are trying to do a better job of characterizing um, the sort of the trajectory of patients who have these constellation of symptoms, seeing how things change. Are the symptoms interrelated? Does one go away but others persist? And um, a lot of that has to happen through basically survey-related work, right? You can't do that with a big you know, database linked to electronic health records that you're pulling codes out, right? Because you really need to get you know, patient-reported information directly uh, through surveys. Quality of life data, for example, and you need... To- assessment and patient reported outcomes for that that you need traditional cohort studies in which the paper patient is, is reporting this rather than the database but uh yeah nonetheless for conditions and sequelae the, some of this are really helpful for example for incident diagnosis data and and for those diagnoses that are the data that the data from the database is highly reliable is very useful so yeah so it's just different complementary evidence i would say Joe, let's come to you next about the um, other paper that we were hoping to talk about on long-term um, outcomes after something had happened. And you're going to tell us about stroke. Yeah, this is an interesting uh, paper in its own right. And I'll say, you know, the in part, uh, I think that the enthusiasm among the editors for this paper was driven by all of the research into long COVID. Suddenly, we had a lot of investigators out there trying to understand the long-term sequelae of you know a major condition, a major infectious disease that had affected the, the you know the broad scale population, and there isn't a lot on the kind of burden of a disease, you know its impact on a patient's life uh, in general. There are some isolated studies on you know the impact on physical activity from having a heart attack, or you know other things like that. And of course there are there are some functionally oriented diseases, you know MS. ALS, you know, where we, we we obviously understand how people's day-to-day lives are changed. But in this case, this I thought this was just such an interesting way to look at it. And and it, it suffers the same problem that Juan just mentioned, right? It's kind of like a big database study. So it's essentially, you know, what can we glean from a population-level research as opposed to surveying people individually through a cohort study? But in this case, they looked at labor market participation uh, after people experienced a stroke in Denmark. And Denmark is kind of an ideal place to look at a problem like this. Everyone has you know, equal access to an excellent healthcare system. There's a strong safety net. It's uh, not difficult to go on to disability, right, when people need it. I mean, it, 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 and it's a, it's a community of individuals that take care of one another. And so this was um, essentially looked at all, you know, all people uh, who had had a stroke that uh, over a pretty long period of time from 2005 to 2018. And they looked at what percentage of patients who had been admitted for a stroke went on to sick leave first within three weeks of diagnosis. And so that's kind of interesting. You know, everyone, you know, you expect you have a kind of a, a severe, serious uh, disease, injury, an acute event like a stroke, you're going to probably need to go on to uh, disability for, or sick leave for a period of time. And it was about um, two-thirds of patients. It, it differed by the type of disease. So 62% of those with an ischemic stroke, 69% with an intracerebral hemorrhage, and only 52% of those with a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So that's intriguing. But what I think makes this so interesting is they then compare to uh, you know a population 
the general population kind of matched on key characteristics and look at kind of what happens over time. And again, I'm sorry, listeners, that I thought that the figures in this paper were really cool, the, the sort of figure one kind of how things change over time. This is just, you know, go onto the website, take a look at the paper, because um, I think you'll find it interesting. But just kind of big picture, um, the, the participation in the labor market uh, was uh, at six months, uh, about 56% among people who had a stroke versus 96% among the general population. And at, um, at two years, it was 64%. Uh, and 90% or 92%. But the the point of that being, there's still this big gap, even like two years down the road, where people have, you know, recovered from the severe disease, where they're still not able uh, to get back to their daily lives. And they also look at the pre- prevalence of sort of getting a disability pension and what that is. And I, I just thought that these kind of labor, using these labor statistics to try to understand the functional impact on a patient's life uh, after a severe disease was quite interesting. How did you reflect on that from a U.S. point of view? Like, how does this play out differently in other communities, communities where the safety net isn't as strong? Like I know in the United States, it's very difficult uh, to get long term disability benefits right in uh, this global south. Right. Disability benefits are not necessarily even available. Right. And, And families and other caregivers kind of pick up the slack. Um, and it's and it just shows you kind of just how hard it is, the, the burden of you know suffering illness uh, in our world. It is an interesting outcome, Joe, isn't it? Because in the previous paper, we were talking about these various um, symptoms. And then I suppose you imagine what's happening in the lives of those patients. This paper is kind of interesting because it's telling you a bit about how they're able to participate in a major part of their life, isn't it? Um, so it's measuring not just their morbidity, um, well, it's not measuring really necessarily their morbidity in any direct way at all. It's, it's kind of measuring the impact of that um, on their life, which kind of feeds into then what we're going to think a bit about later, which is around excess deaths um, and, and just the different, the different um, insights that different outcomes can, can give us. Yeah, I, I agree. So before we move on to um, healthcare crises, Juan, let's just briefly um, come to you and this paper about vaccination against COVID in children. Tell us a bit about what the uncertainty was and how this study moves things along. Well, um, the um, uncertainty comes from the uh, the fact that most of the data on vaccines comes from uh, adults. the the trial data primarily came from adults, then the vaccine effectiveness data came from adults, and then the trial data came from children, but vaccine effectiveness data uh, is coming later in in that sequence. And so all of these studies using um, uh, observational uh, data on children are very, very helpful to see how vaccines work in real life. And I think that this uh, paper that from my... Homeland Argentina is um, very interesting is that um, Argentina is one of the countries that started vaccination children very early. I think after the first one is China, was China, uh, and the second one was Argentina. The vaccination strategy started with um, inactivated vaccine um, that comes from China, actually. Everyone knows it as a Sinopharm vaccine. And then as the availability of mRNA vaccines was greater, um, children were vaccinated with mRNA vaccines. And um, so what they did is they... um, uh, they use this very interesting study that it's been used uh, lately for assessing effect, uh, vaccine effectiveness that is uh, a test negative case control design. And um, the interest, interesting bit about it is that you are not so depending on health-seeking behavior or how much testing there is. So you're not looking at vaccinated, unvaccinated, and looking at the incidence, which would be a, a cohort design. Um, because that observational data would be biased because, for example, people who are vaccinated might test often or less often. It all depends on how the the exposure conditions the behavior to ascertain the outcome. So, mm-hmm. um, so how do you do the magic to iron that out? 
you you go the other way around. You start with the testing, mm-hmm. and you see who tests positive and who tests a negative, mm-hmm. and then you gather the data of the exposure. In this case, vaccination, and you try to a certain vaccine effectiveness. So, um, uh, of course, this this uh, also has um, some. Um, difficulties because you're you're going for the outcome that the, the typical case, case control so the selection of the controls has to be adequate and um and the, the 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 bias is not completely eliminated like any observational study but it's uh it's the most common design used uh nowadays to assess vaccine effectiveness well you picked it juan and so, uh the bmj picked it so we're, we're gonna trust you that, that it's good what did it what did it tell you so they recruited uh, 278,000 children. Um, most of, of them were healthy. And um, they were categorized in different uh, types of, of, of combinations of vaccines. Either fully vaccinated was considered uh, children who had uh, two doses of mRNA vaccine. That's a very important thing because we're talking about a mixture of a salad of vaccines so and there are other categories partially vaccinated unvaccinated and um so basically they try to look at the 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 outcomes of the testing positive and negative and the exposures and that's interesting because it covered a period of different variants it covers both the wave of the delta variant in argentina and the omicron variant in argentina so if the the listeners slash readers, I would, uh, I'd say go <laughs> <laughs> go to table two. They can see the um, vaccine eff- uh, effectiveness estimates uh, for the combinations of vaccines, and they can see the vaccine vaccine effectiveness uh, for the Delta period and the Omicron period. So for um, the combinations of mRNA vaccines, the effectiveness was between 60 and 70%, let's say. But if you look at the Omicron period, that number went down, um, substantially 17%, 40% tops. So, um, um, it, there, there's, there, there are multiple lessons from, from, from this observation study. First is that it's good to see that the trial data um, for uh, children translated into vaccine effectiveness, especially during the Delta wave. But it does... So you um, mean it kind of matched up what was seen in the trials then matches what you're seeing in these observational data now? Yeah, we saw yeah. and the, the vaccine was approved uh, let's just say that the children were vaccinated before all the trial data was available. Let's just say that. But then, when we had the when we had the trial data, it that it reduced the the infection. Yes, we can say that there there's vaccine effectiveness. But perhaps it, the the uh, the um, the data on Omicron is quite um, interesting because it tells us that perhaps we need different strategies to fight new variants, especially variants that have a very different pattern of disease and different antigen makeup. And um, and I guess some of the current strategies, um, for example, the new vaccines that were updated inc- to include Omicron might be something interesting and it would be very interesting to see what's the data on effectiveness on uh uh, on Omicron uh, for these new and updated vaccines in children. Um, yeah, those are, those are some of the main highlights. Okay, Joe, what did you think? Well, um, no, I think, you know, Juan hit a lot of the sort of major points here. And I think it is very interesting. You know, people smarter than us are going to need to make difficult decisions around how, like, who to vaccinate, how often whether to vaccinate going forward, depending on, you know, what the new variants look like. I mean, is it, is, is the, is the, you know, is, is COVID still a, you know, very severe disease? I think so. I'm in the, I'm working on the clinical wards right now. There are four patients, you know, out of 15 on my floor that have COVID and have been hospitalized for, you know, respiratory problems. It's not that COVID is still, is no longer, you know, worrisome or burdensome, Uh, but the Omicron variant is different, right? It, It does seem like, certain populations of patients are at higher risk. And so we have to think about then what does that mean in terms of who gets vaccinated and when? 
what does a population-based vaccine strategy make sense? Or should we really just be focusing on the higher risk? And like I said, people smarter than us are going to have some challenging decisions to make. And, you know, studies like this, I think, provide very useful data to help kind of help us triangulate the problem, right? Because we can't do a trial just, you know, in, in, in all the various populations. So we need this kind of observational data to help us get closer uh, to the truth or to at least best policy practice for clinical medicine. Right, so on to part two of the podcast now, which I'm thinking of as our healthcare crisis section. And we're going to hear from Naz shortly on the excess mortality figures. But first, let's have a look at this rather nice uh, and slightly niche pair of papers on understanding some of the longer problems that we're having delivering healthcare. Um, We're veering away from some of the more commonly noted ones um, in the national media. And the first one, I think, is a kind of take on workforce and workload issues. Um, And it really gets to the heart of healthcare's most precious resources, its workforce. And there are a lot of factors that affect people's performance at work and spiraling workloads and burnout is definitely one of them. And it can be quite hard to quantify um, how much work we've got. And these authors make the case that if we're going to be excellent doctors and work to guidelines and provide really top-notch care, then we need proper time to deliver this care And that should be factored in when guidelines are made. So it should firstly influence the direction and strength of recommendation. So whether you recommend for or something against it and whether that recommendation is a strong recommendation or a a weaker recommendation. And it should also be clear for policymakers and doctors who are then using that guideline to plan the way that they might use it. And it was surprising to me, um, kind of on one level, and I kind of knew this didn't happen, but at the same time, when someone lays it out like this, you think, why doesn't it happen? That this generally isn't considered by major guideline producers um, or in methodological frameworks such as GRADE, which are used to make them. Um, should it be? Juan and Joe, are you cheering it as clinicians? Are you feeling well, that this is something that... Um, <laughs> I, I think... I think that the breakthrough, the concept of this paper has to do with how to quantify this, because sometimes the idea is out there. For example, the, the evidence to decision framework from GRADE has a domain that has to do with feasibility. So when you're thinking about recommendation, you have to think how feasible it is to implement it. But feasibility has so many angles to it as to whether you can articulate the, resor- the human resources, but also has to do with logistics and uh, many of these things. But the idea to able to quantify the time people need to implement the interventions and that fitting into how we frame recommendations is very innovative concept. It is. Should we pick out those two things, Juan? Because the first thing you mentioned there was the what what factors might feed in and um, the paper includes a nice summary of some of those things. So it might consider things like the complexity or the intensity of the task, how often it might need to be done whether you need any special tools or technology to do it, how many people you might have to give it to. If it's a really common condition, um, it might take up an awful lot of clin- clinician time um, if you've got to deliver this intervention to multiple people. That may well be worth it, but but perhaps in some cases it isn't. You need to think about the eligibility um, for that and about the amount of time that you think your clinicians um, actually have. Uh, Joe, do you want to come in on anything of that? Because then I wondered if if we could zoom down this example that's given in the paper. If not, because it is, I think, quite quite entertaining to read. Well, I mean, I'll just note like this. This is, I think, one of the biggest challenges in in a healthcare system, which is um, it's easy to say do more, right? This should also be done. This should also be done. But at some point, the sort of benefit risk. Uh, it, has to take into account that there's a limited time in any clinical encounter, right? And a good clinician knows to prioritize those interventions, that time to talk about something where the sort of anticipated benefit is going to be at at its best. And, And at the same time, there are other things, you know, where we think, you know, it's probably you know, it may actually do more harm than good, right? But but it actually becomes like a checkbox that we have to pay attention to for various reasons. It's And it, it, it's very challenging. And I think health planners are beginning to 
uh, take this more into account at least. Um, but I know in my world in the United States, it's you know mostly we have like these are all the things that have to get done, and, and there's very little discussion, particularly for the primary care physician who already has only 15 minutes for any individual physician visit, uh, patient visit. That uh, it's just harder and harder. I feel like our listeners are going to like this paper, so I, I'm going to tell you a tiny bit more about it, um, which is um, the example that they give in the paper was around uh, physical activity, brief advice for adults in primary care. So this brief advice takes about 10 minutes to give to a patient. Um, and they suggest that all adults from 19 and over would be eligible to be screened um, for physical inactivity and then delivered this brief advice. And if you did that, about 40% of adults would be eligible. Based on NICE's evidence review, you have to give the brief intervention to 14 people in order to get one more person to report an increase in physical activity. And doctors need to screen 35 people to find 14 people and then spend 10 minutes with each one of those. Um, so it takes about 175 minutes or three hours of a GP time for one more person to increase their self-reported physical activity. And and what I think it's interesting of the example is that uh, a, a lot of physicians that, that are listening to this podcast may may think about how much time they spend talking with patients and say, telling them, well, how can you increase your physical activities? Is there anything that you like doing? And all that the, the motivation is speaking that uh, talk that we use with uh, with patients. But at the same time, we also need to think about the outcome. In this case, the recommendation of NICE guidelines talk about the outcome of increasing physical activities, which we know is, a, is, is good for your health. But there are so many things that we do, are doing as physicians that are in line guidelines for recommendations that perhaps do not increase very important patient outcomes. So the time invested needs to be weighted with what we are getting as an outcome. I, I just think it's it's totally brilliant to sort of apply these sort of average numbers to a GP's practice panel to, you know, to get at this like, well, it would actually take 167 hours of GP time a year to screen and then appropriately counsel on physical activity, right? Like, that's not nothing and you know and that's on top and of that, everything and that's else just looking, <laughs> <laughs> well then when you when you look at it so in, in the final paragraph of the example they said if you get a gp who sit, spends 60 percent of their 40 hours a week face to face with patients um they'll have a total of just over a thousand hours of um, direct patient facing care so if you need 167 hours to implement this guideline um as we just talked about earlier It'll be about 15% of a GP's yearly total face-to-face -face time with patients that would be consumed with this single just, activity. Just physical activity counseling, and think, screening and, and counseling. Yeah, just yeah. that. I know. And then, like, and then you that. think about things that actually take a long time, like, you know, like yes. medication adherence around blood pressure medication, the decision to undergo prostate cancer screening, can, uh, screen, prostate cancer screening, you know, like with PSA testing or even lung cancer screening, right? Like with, with CT, like all these things now that require shared decision making as part of the screening. Um, like, oh my gosh, there's just not, not, there's definitely well, not enough time in the day. I think that we've all been very positive about this paper. And I think that a lot of our listeners will be as well. And I think that we should thank Mina Johansson, Gordon Guyatt and Victor Montori, who are its authors for um, gifting it to us. You know, it's funny because um, Victor has written extensively on the burden of being a patient, but I, I love that now he's writing on the burden of being a primary care doctor. <laughs> So the second paper that I wanted to, sorry. So the second paper we're going to discuss in our healthcare crisis section is about reducing unnecessary healthcare to create a more sustainable system. And Juan, you've published this interesting paper in the EBM journal outlining the numbers which researchers need to calculate overdiagnosis connected to the detection of pre-disease and precursors. That sounds incredibly complicated. And now you've got the very, very um, difficult job of explaining it extremely simply so that we all understand. 
So let's just imagine that you are trying to frame a recommendation about breast cancer screening, right? So you're saying that um, if you're going to implement breast cancer screening, a certain number of people would benefit from it in absolute terms. A, a group of women would get false positives and get a biopsy. And a group of women will test positive for the mammography, will get a biopsy and will get a diagnosis of cancer that perhaps that cancer would have never caused a problem in their lifetime, which is the concept of overdiagnosis of a disease. So what these authors did is they 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 actually work in a guideline panel and they were discussing osteoporosis, for example, right? And they were saying, well, in this case, we're talking about screening for um, osteoporosis and high risk of fracture. And we're the people who are high risk of fracture, they're going to receive a treatment to prevent the fracture. But we can't talk about the overdiagnosis of a fracture because a fracture, a hip fracture is a hip fracture. But perhaps, is there an, a risk of overdiagnosing a per- person at high risk? That means that we're labeling someone as being high risk, receiving, having them receive treatment. And that person, perhaps in their whole life, would have never had had a fracture. So they're trying to extrapolate this concept to to labeling people at high risk and precursors of disease being pre something having a pre lesion, and so pre diabetes or pre hypertension, yeah, or... pre cancerous lesions as mm-hmm. well. And so in this paper, they outline that that you need a couple of data to do that. You need to know, for example, and this is plain in Figure Two. You need what is the proportion of the people who is going to be labeled at highest risk? What is the mean risk in that group? What is the probability of not having a fracture? And based on that, you can sort of have this ballpark number of the number of people who would be overdiagnosed. In this case, for example, it would be approximately. So you need 10%. some kind of baseline risk of that group's ongoing health, in a way, rather than disease. To help exactly. you appreciate the outcomes, the negative outcomes later. Yeah, and the the author the authors do that based on different uh, trials that that assess this uh, baseline risk and the risk in high risk people. They estimate that ten twelve percent of people would be overdiagnosed with having high risk of osteoporosis, and this is very important because it, that that number is starting to become present in the conversation with patients, saying, "Okay, we're gonna." Put we can we might offer you to do a, a, a bone density scan, right? And with that bone density scan, we're going to assess the risk. And once we have that risk, you say, well, you have a ten-year fracture, uh, a ten percent year, a ten-year fracture, uh, hip fracture risk. And what does that mean? I need to take this medication. Okay, but there's a ten percent chance. That in your lifetime you you would have never uh, of, of you could be within the ten percent of people who were screened, and we are maybe over detecting this high risk and over treating, which is uh, it's just very challenging to put into conversations. But I think that is an example similar to the TNT of another breakthrough concept that is trying to highlight a problem of how the things that we're doing in guideline. Uh, maybe overburden both patients and physicians. Yeah, and it's interesting to reflect, Juan, isn't it, how um, well, you raised the issue of osteoporosis and you talked about that conversation you were then going to have with the patients about whether they were going to take a medication and to think about you know future conversations that you might ha- have in the future about whether it's still worth taking that medication for you, if you have any side effects or um, you know interactions with that medication with anything uh, else. Which feeds back to the paper that we were just talking about, wasn't it, on um, on on the time needed to treat. So last but not least, we're going to have a look at the data on excess mortality produced by the Office of National Statistics or ONS. The UK Health Secretary was interviewed on LBC earlier in January and seemed sceptical about the value of the numbers. In evidence terms, I think he had some methodological queries. So I caught up with Nasrul Islam, Associate Professor of Epidemiology and Statistics at the University of Southampton. He's also a research editor for the BMJ and wrote a paper on excess deaths published during the pandemic. It took data from many countries, including from the UK's ONS, for whom he's also given methodological advice. Let's listen to Stephen Barclay's clip 
and then hear what Naz has to say. Disrespectfully, Secretary of State, this is excluding the pandemic, the worst year since 1951, and figures published yesterday showed the third consecutive week and more, more than 1,000 excess deaths in England and Wales, and showed last year was one of the highest death totals in Britain ever recorded outside of the pandemic on the Conservative watch. What, for the love of God, has your party been doing for the last 13 years with the NHS? Well, what I'm saying is is uh, we don't accept those figures. I think you don't accept the figures. So no, the, the point is we're looking at those figures in terms of, for example, when you say over a 50-year period, obviously there's been very significant changes, both in terms of the demography, the numbers uh, within the population, but also the type of conditions that people have. We have a much older population, people uh, with multiple conditions, much more so. They have the old past. people in France, the Secretary of State. Indeed, and, and that's my point. That was my opening point, Nick, that actually in France, uh, across Europe, there is a very similar debate. It's something, as I say, I've been discussing with the chief medical officer and others in terms of the fact that as a consequence of the pandemic, we know that people had treatment delayed. We know some people are still being delayed in terms of treatment where they're on uh, waiting lists, and that has an impact in terms of excess mortality. But that is something that's very complicated in terms of getting to the, the core causes. Naz, thanks so much for joining us. Um, listening into that clip there from the health secretary, can you tell us from your perspective um, how reliable this um, ONS Office for National Statistic data source is? Thank you very much for having me, Helen. Uh, so there are two aspects of that. One is the quality of the data itself. And the second part is the estimation process for excess mortality. On the first point, we have one of the finest and robust data on mortality in the world. So there's little question about the quality of mortality data in the UK produced by the ONS. Next aspect is how excess mortality is estimated. There are plenty of articles that showed excess mortality is the best uh, metrics for um, estimating excess, excess mortality or the um, detrimental effect of the pandemic. The estimation has several different ways of doing. So the way ONS does is they take the average of the last five years before the pandemic, that is 2015 to 2019 average, and they Post that that would be the expected mortality in 2020 if we didn't have the pandemic. Then they compared uh, the ex expected one with the observed one, and the difference between that was defined as excess mortality. Generally speaking, the approach itself is exactly what we're supposed to do. We need to have an estimation for what would be expected the way ONS did, taking the average of the last five years, may not be the only and the best approach for sure. There are other ways, but this is one of the approaches because it is simple and uh, they have been consistent with uh, uh, producing these estimates throughout the pandemic. But I must say there are other or possibly better ways of estimating excess mortality as well. And if you use those other or better ways, do you come to hugely different answers? First, the qualitative summary that UK had one of the worst uh, excess mortality in the world is true regardless of the model you use. So there are four or five different models that people used, including our model that we published in the BMJ in 2020. And what we did was we took care of the pre-pandemic death trend, and we projected that as a counterfactual for 2020. And then we took the difference between counterfactual and observed mortality. Our colleagues at Max Planck Institute in Germany, they published a paper where they compared four different ways of estimating mortality. And the approach that ONS applied would return the least excess deaths out of all the other approaches. So the numbers, if anything, in terms of excess mortality would be higher than 
what ONS reported. Question. Naz, um, we heard the health secretary there talking about comparing um, the UK to other countries. They mentioned France and different demographics. In the paper that you did and published back in 2020, that's something you attempted to do. How can we see the figures in a broader context as to how the UK is doing compared to other countries, for example? Is that useful? It is, absolutely. Um, the question is, is there a way that we could compare two different countries given that uh, there are differences in uh, the structure of the population, maybe elderly population in one country versus the other one? That is exactly why in our paper, we addressed the differences in age structure between different countries and that is called age standardization because age is the most important predictor of mortality. On top of that, sex is another very important predictor of that. So in our paper, we addressed both the differences in age structure as well as in the sex structure in, in each of these countries. In the interview, France was talked about. Now, if we compare age standardized estimates, that is after taking care of the age differences between France and England, France has substantially lower excess mortality rate than England and Wales. In our paper, our estimated excess mortality was 119 for female and 181 for male in England and Wales. Compared to that, in France, it was only 37 per 100,000 in France for female, and for male it was only 85. So look at the differences. For female it was one quarter, and for male it was less than half in France. Better compar comparison would be made between Spain and Italy, rather. The reason for that is the total number of excess death was very similar in these two countries compared with England and Wales. After age standardization, still, for example, in Italy, it was only 80 versus 120 in England for female. And for male, it was 156 in Italy compared to 181 in England and Wales. So even after taking care of the age differences, England still had higher excess mortality than Italy. Mm. So I was going to say, so you're saying, Naz, that if we wanted to compare how um, England might be doing over time, um, looking at how their co how that trajectory in the UK is comparing to um, Spain or to Italy, who were at a similar um, or, or a closer point to us at, at the point in the pandemic when you studied um, this issue, that might be a better comparison country broadly for us than somewhere like France, which was doing appeared to be doing markedly better than us. At the, at the same time? I think so. This is my opinion because of the comparable number of excess mm. deaths. But either way, we should only compare age standardized estimates, not uh, the crude estimates as are being reported by ONS and other agencies. That's very useful. Now, the work that you did was back in 2020, Naz. Um, tell us what's changed in this space and, and what work is ongoing in this area. Excellent. So obviously down the road, excess mortality is a very useful uh, metric for policymakers. However, from policy perspective, it is more important to identify the sources of these excess mortalities. The reason for that is if we know that most of the deaths were happening due to uh, causes such as diabetes or cardiovascular disease or cancer care, then more resources can be mobilized for that. We have to remember healthcare resources, particularly human resources, are non-elastic. They can't be produced overnight. So we have to identify and track the progress or a lack thereof so that we can plan from now on to, to produce more human resources in healthcare to prioritize uh, um, other resources towards uh, those causes of death. So that's 
something that we are currently working on. Is that something your group is working on, Naz, when you say we? Uh, yes, I am leading one of the projects and I'm collaborating on two other projects as well. Oh, great. So what do we have? What research questions are you going to be filling us in on in the future? So, as you know, the high risk population is something to be prioritized. We know existing health conditions such as multiple long term conditions, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, they put people at risk of hospitalization and death. Now, it has double edged, it's like a double edged sword. It is affecting human health. At the same time, it is also increasing a tremendous amount of burden on NHS or healthcare. Now, we have to identify which combinations of these diseases are putting people at high risk of hospitalization as well as death. And it is actually a huge problem than it sounds. I can give you one example. If we have 35 conditions only, there are more. The combinations of disease possible is 34 billion. Wow. <laughs> now, it is a huge challenge for data science, yes. So we have developed a pipeline that will reduce these combinations substantially by using machine learning techniques. And then we will see which combinations of diseases are putting people at high risk of hospitalization as well as mortality. That's what we are working Well, we'll look forward to hearing more about your work. For today, Naz, thank you so much for joining us and um, taking us through those figures. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks very much for having me, Ellen. Well, that's it from Naz, and in fact, from all of us this month. Huge thank you to Naz for being our special guest, and as always, to Joe and Juan. We'll be back uh, around the same time next month. In the meantime, do subscribe to where you get your podcast from so you don't miss out. Until then, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Great to see everybody. Take care out there.